Hey guys, welcome to the Neglected Podcast. This podcast is not to change your mind, but to invite you into somebody else's narrative. This is a podcast to give a voice to the neglected. It is also an opportunity for all of us to engage. All right, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Neglected Podcast. My name is Nick Schultz. You can hit me up at Schultzy Time. We're at For the Neglected, and we have a very special guest this week. Her name is Joyce. Riggs, what's going on, Joyce? How are you doing? Hey, great. I am fantastic. I am excited. I guess I just kind of stay excited. Well, that's good. I'm glad you're excited because it's a good time to be excited. Yes. There's, there's a lot going on and you've got a lot going on and I appreciate you reaching out to us and we were able to, to figure this out with your busy schedule to actually get you in the studio and, yes. and hear your story. Yes, thank you so very much. And uh, I guess I have a kind of interesting story. Uh, I grew up in rural North Carolina, Mm -hmm. a little place called Bethel near Greenville, East Carolina University. And we're not that far from the Virginia border. So we've got uh, various uh, temperatures. For example, we got snow in North Carolina, in Bethel. Uh And I tell people, I say, you know, Bethel means house of God. And they said, oh, really? I said, yep. So I said, I'm from a good place. And we only had one stoplight in my hometown. Wow. Yeah. And now we don't have any. Because they put in Highway 64, which goes around the, the, the little communities, more like a bedroom community. And everybody there know everybody. Okay, so that's where I grew up. And it's an agriculture area. I, my family, worked in the fields of North Carolina. We picked cotton, we picked cucumbers, we put in tobacco. Hmm. So, and the jobs were very scarce. And there were 10 of us. And my mom actually raised my niece. I was the number six of 10. And, uh, of course, I had to fight for attention Mm -hmm. because I was, uh, you know, sandwiched in the middle, so to speak. And we grew up very poor. Mm -hmm. But I will say this. We were poor physically, uh, financially, but we had love. And we were rich in love. My mom was a devout Christian, a praying woman. And uh, I remember oftentimes when... If we didn't have things to eat, we didn't have food. And I would hear mama praying. And invariably, somebody would bring food to the house. I had an aunt that did domestic work. And oftentimes, uh, she would bring food home from where she worked. And it was like she knew we needed food, so she would bring it. Mm-hmm. But in any event, growing up was pretty tough. It mm-hmm. really was. And with that many siblings, and we were so poor, neither my mom or dad had a high school education. Mm-hmm. So my mom also did domestic work. And my dad worked at this um, kind of like a, we call it a meal, where they processed uh, plants for planting. And also they had, they separated like sweet potatoes that would come there. They would separate those to, from the good, from the bad, okay? And so they worked real hard, I got to admit. They were very hardworking people. And my mom instilled some good stuff in us. Uh, for example, like uh, respecting people. And she would constantly say, you got to love your neighbors. You got to love everybody. God made us all. And, you know, and, and that stuck with me. Hmm. And she always taught us to work hard. And whatever you want, you work for it and treat other people with respect. And also be kind, be a servant, help somebody else. And so all of those things stuck with me throughout my life. And I am so glad it did because in spite of a lot of things that I've been through, it made me the woman that I am because of great teachings early on. And like I said, my mom was a devout Christian. Uh, for example, I remember we didn't have health care coverage. Yeah. Okay. We really didn't. We, we were poor. And we had a little clinic. We call it a clinic. Uh, we call it Uptown. 
And I remember as a little girl, on the door, it said white and colored. So I was always curious. I just walked through the white side and my mom grabbed my hand. She said, no, you can't go through that door. I said, why not? She said, baby, that's for whites only and we gotta go through the colored side. I said, mom, I don't quite understand. You told me that God made us all and that God is love and, and you know, we're all God's people. And of course I was conflicted because I didn't quite understand. I grew up in a segregated South. Mm -hmm. Okay. Even the high school I was in, we didn't have any white students. We had at the end of my senior year, uh, senior year, we had white teachers coming in. They start integrating with the teachers. But in any event, I was conflicted. I, I mean, I really was. And I remember during that time, Martin Luther King was killed. Uh, all the women in town was like the wailing women. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I didn't quite understand. They told us this great leader uh, of, of, uh, of black America was killed. He was assassinated and he had brought about a lot of changes. I mean, I had heard about not Martin Luther King, but I did not understand the ramifications right. of what he had done for people, period, for mankind, for humanity. But in any event, uh, so like I said early on, my mom taught, taught us some good stuff. And we grew up real poor. We had a two-bedroom house. There were 10 of us. For that many people. Yes. Wow. And we slept on top of each other, literally. Yeah. Okay, we had bunk beds. And actually, and, and it's kind of funny, but if someone, because there was bedwetters, and if somebody wet the bed, you got it. You all got it. You all got it. And we used to laugh. We had a saying, well, how many <laughs> fish did you catch last night? You know, type thing. But- um, there were only two bedrooms and the house was so raggedy that if it rained, we had to put buckets down to catch the water. Wow. And during the winter, we used to tease and say, well, we're going ice skating because if water hit the floor, literally there was ice on the floor. Okay. And we had outhouses and we had the old wood burning stoves. So running water. Uh, no, we had a pump initially. Yeah. We had to go outside to the pump and mm -hmm. pump the water. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so, um, it was hard. Yeah. And actually, I don't remember as a child ever having a birthday party mm. because, well, we couldn't afford it. We yeah. couldn't afford anything. But like I said, my mom, boy, she just, she was like uh, the mother of the town, mm -hmm. you know, because everybody came to her for advice, boy, wisdom beyond measures. And for example, even though we didn't have much to eat, but if we brought somebody home with us, uh, they ate also. They ate what we ate. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, so they were saying, Miss Adam, Miss Adam. As a matter of fact, when my mom passed in 2012, people that hadn't been home in years, they heard my mom had died. They came from north, south, east, and west. They said, we had to be here because she meant so much to us. She meant so much to this community. But I had a, a very good mom. And I guess I still her because that was my heart. Yeah. Yeah, she really was. And I say that because my dad was an alcoholic. And he worked. He was a working alcoholic, but he was very cruel to us as children. Uh, each one of us bear different scars from the way he would beat us. As a matter of fact, I remember my mom went to church on Sunday. So I was kind of like uh, the oldest one in the house at the time. And she said she would cook uh, uh, Saturday night, uh, the standard collard greens, uh, chicken, and um Potato salad, cornbread, things like that. Okay, good old Southern meal. Mm -hmm. And she told me, make sure your daddy don't go mess over the food. I said, okay. And But then also I said, look, mom said don't mess with the food till she get out of church. We also had a space heater. And he turned the space heater off because it was mad. I turned the space heater back on. He took his pocket knife and he stabbed me in my arm. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, he. Thank God he didn't hit the main uh, vein, the artery. And to this day, I have the scar, but I don't wear the pain. Okay, and so he. I mean, he really uh, inflicted a lot of physical harm against us. Even one day, he took a two by four and hit me in my back. Yeah, and one of my brothers, um, he took a mason jar and cut his ear from one side to the other. Yes. And I went into shock. We had an, I had an aunt that lived across, we could sit across the field. And I think I could have beat Wilma Rudolph's record because I was in shock. And I ran to her house because my mom wasn't there. Mm. And we got our aunt to get him to the doctor. And, uh, but he was, I now look back and I do believe that uh, he had some mental problems, mm. you know? Mm -hmm. And I, and I guess I kind of, um, Made excuses for him as I got older. Well, he had 10 children, couldn't properly provide for him, had a wife, and he, he was an alcoholic. Yeah, that was one of my questions I was thinking of when you were talking is, how at a, at a young age are you deciphering what is wrong, what is right? And I'm sure you, you love your mom like you're talking about, and you're taking her lead yes. on what she tells you about your father. And like, how are you processing what he's doing and she's probably trying to teach you to respect him and love him, but yes. you're feeling this tension of that's it's, not right. That's exactly right. And I was torn. I was really torn. And I know this may sound cruel to some people because he was so mean and he was, he was the town drunk. Mm -hmm. Okay. And we had a little, a little corner store and he would get drunk and he would uh, fall out and couldn't make it home. Somebody would call my mom and say, you need to come and get Sammy. He's drunk. And mama would send us down to the store with the little red wagon. And we managed to get him on the wagon and get him back home. Okay. And this may sound cruel, but as a child, I would pray that he would die. Mm. I mean, really, because it hurt. Mm -hmm. And I say it hurt because he would even come in church and curse my mom out. Yeah. Mm. And the kids would laugh. And they would say, that's Joyce Griggs, daddy. You know, and initially I cried, but I had to survive. So I started laughing along with him yeah. as a survival mechanism, yeah. you know. And when we had the swinging doors in church and it was like, uh-oh, you saw the door swinging. It was him. He would come in and he would curse my mom. He would literally come to the church and curse my mom out. Okay. And uh, even... In school, we had teachers that would come into town. They would spend the weekend. They would room with someone there. And one of my teachers, I remember my history teacher, uh, he would come in and he would talk about it. And I don't, and I know he didn't say it to hurt me, but he would say, you got some women that work really hard to keep their families together, A, B, and C, and you have some men doing all kinds of crazy things against their wife. They beat them. And, and everybody knew they were talking about my dad, mm -hmm. okay? And uh, I don't ever remember my dad ever coming to anything that I had at school. Okay, all I had in my mind was an abusive father. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I want to say this right here. That even though I went to church with my mom, we went to Kojic Church of God in Christ, which is one of the largest black churches, denominations. Um, I went to church, but in my mind, it formed how I perceived God. Mm -hmm. You know, would God love me, mm -hmm. beat me, and leave me? Because I had a, 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 bad, a very bad image of my daddy. I was never validated by my father. And I, all people, all children need to be validated by their father. Because that is supposed to be the most important uh, figure in the family. Mm -hmm. But uh, 
in any event, yes, I would pray that he would die. And I know that was selfish at the time, but I didn't know any better because there was so much hurt. Yeah, there was abused. so much pain. Yeah, yeah, there was so much abuse. And my mom could have been the poster child for domestic violence. I remember, it's clear in my mind, and again, it doesn't hurt, but it's in my mind. It's in my mind's eye. It's in my memory bank. I know uh, my mom had just had my baby sister who was born in August. So it was near, uh, she was born the end of August, and it was near Labor Day. He came home drunk. And my mom had these old big pots where and rubber, she was out washing clothes, and she was still swollen from the baby, but she was working. She had clotheslines. And my dad came home drunk. He cut the clothesline down. And then he went for my mother mm. with this pocket knife. And all I could see in my mind is I am killing my mom. My oldest sister had a, it was either a Pepsi Cola or Coca-Cola bottle. And she hit him in the head and blood went everywhere. And that was the only thing that got him off my mom. And even in my mind's eye now as an adult, you know, it, it comes back. Mm -hmm. Okay. But it was very abusive. And he, my mom had scars all on her arm where he would beat her, you know, cut her. And then we worked in the fields and we would come home. And would you believe, some people may not believe this. He was, he was, like I said, I think he had a mental problem. But we would come out of the fields for lunch. And we'll come home to eat. Uh, he would take our food and throw it outdoors. I mean, literally just throw our food out. And then if my mom left to go visit her mom that lived down the street, he would um, come in the house cursing. Literally, we slept. Our beds were broken. We didn't have uh, bed frames because he would throw our furniture out of the house. So we had center blocks, blocks that kept our beds up. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, he was just very destructive, okay? And uh, so everybody knew that, that people always thought we were moving. Mm -hmm. But it was my dad throwing our furniture out. It's, it's unbelievable because you know, my wife and I, our family, we foster kids. Yes. And I work with a lot of at-risk youth and kids that age out of foster care. And you know, for people hearing this right now, this is such a different time. It's a different, like, yes. seems like a different planet, a different country to hear like how something like that could continue. Because right now we have, you've got videos on your, your camera. People sure. are thinking like, hey, just call the police. Hey, defects would come and figure out how to get involved or a, a teacher would say something. Yeah. But none of that is on the table for what you're going through. That's right. And, you know, for me, that's like, it's heartbreaking because you can tell like how much it's formed who you were as a child and, and sure. going into like adult life. Like exactly. that was your, your yeah, experience. Yeah, that was the basis of, yeah. So how you can even <laughs> be successful or view yourself a certain way or how you view men and race. Like how do you go on to be a young adult and achieve anything and exactly. feel worth and value? Like mm -hmm. how do you transition out of that kind of life into something else? Right, or exactly. How difficult was it? It was very difficult, but you know what? It was by the grace and mercy of God. My faith, and I'll tell anyone, my faith uh, was such an important factor in making me who I am and to overcome the adversities that I experienced early on and even later on in my life. And I want to say this, when my daddy stabbed me in my arm, mm -hmm. I took him to court. Okay. Really? Yeah, I took him to court. We had to go to Greenville because Greenville, Pitt County, that was the county seat. They did nothing. Mm -hmm. And the only thing the judge said, well, you need to act like a child. I said, you know what? I am acting like a child. 
And I can understand if he want to spank me with a switch or a whatever, a belt, but to stab me. And that kind of angered me against this so-called legal system. How old are you at this time? I was like 12 years old. Wow. Yeah, I was like 12. And I think maybe that prompted me also, well, I was always a reader and I was always curious. And I think down the line that prompted me also, ultimately I became an attorney, mm -hmm. okay? And uh, so when he said that, I go, boy, where is the justice? I guess I was asking even then, where is the justice? And I didn't see any. You know, mm -hmm. for a child to be stabbed, for him to abuse us like that, for him to abuse my mom. And I would beg mama, please leave him, mama, please. And But she wouldn't. And on this note, I'll share this and then I'll move on. And I remember one time he came home drunk. And we had those old icebox. They were heavy. And he went in the refrigerator and the icebox uh, was open, fell on him. And he couldn't get out of it. And mama said, y'all get your daddy from under the icebox. And I stood there and I looked at him and I laughed at him. And I wasn't going to help, but I did. Okay, that compassionate part of me did. Mm -hmm. But I was angry. I was an angry young lady because of what had happened to me. Thank God we were never sexually abused. Mm -hmm. Okay, we were never. And also my dad uh, did some bootlegging. Okay, they would get this liquor and he was, they would sell, you know, little shot jars and whatever. Yeah, I guess to make money and see desperate people do desperate things. Mm -hmm. And see, I had an aunt also. My auntie was a bootlegger and it got to the point that she, he had to pass her house before he got home and she would get his money. And then there we were without anything almost, right. you know, and that was kind of sad. And then I had an auntie, my mom's sister, whose children were older and she wanted me. She wanted Joyce Marie. And mama said, no, I've, I, I'm going to keep my children together. And she did. But my aunt favored me. So I got some extra little benefit. Every now and then I got a new dress. You know, mm -hmm. because and, and, and she would give me stuff and because she didn't have children, they would do things for me. So I thank God for that. But in any event, I worked in the fields. I picked cotton. My mom picked cotton. I remember early on, my mom would go out to the field. She had these burlap sacks. It, the, uh, the adults had the long burlap sacks. And I wasn't old enough to have my own sack. She would put us on the on her sack and pull and pick cotton. You know how much it's hard to pick a hundred pound of cotton because it's very light. Yeah, okay, super light. And, yeah, it is. But then when we got old enough, we got our own sacks. And see, cotton picking season was about this time of year, September, October, and we had to stay out of school. I didn't want to stay out of school, yeah. and I would cry because I loved school. And when the school bus would come by, we would fall out in the field. So the kids wouldn't see you in the cotton field because they go back to school and tell on you. I saw George Griggs out in the field picking cotton, you know, and we had to do it because we had to eat. We had to get school clothes. Mm -hmm. And back then, you know how kids tell them, I'm not going to do this. You dare not tell your mom or your, your parents you're not going to do ABC back then. But yeah. that was for our very survival. You know, and then on Saturday when we uh, worked in the fields, mom might give us a couple of dollars, ten dollars, and we would go downtown, or we would go to Tarboro, North Carolina. We thought we were, you know, and mm -hmm. we had a few dollars, and that was exciting for us. We would catch the Greyhound bus over there, okay. But in any event, one day out in those fields, I looked up at my mom, and I said, "Mom, I'm going to college. I'm going to get an education, and I'm not coming back to this." Not that I thought I was better than anybody there, but there was something in me I knew that I could do better. And I want to say this: my mom would babysit um, for uh, this white family, and when I got older, they let me babysit their children. They had Reader's Digest. 
We couldn't afford magazines. I would read Word Power because in Word Power, I knew I wanted to go to college. I knew I had to take the SAT. So I read Word Power to increase my vocabulary. I thank God for that. Okay. And so I did. I went to college. I went off to North Carolina Central University in Durham, North Carolina. It's a historic black college. I got a bachelor's degree in sociology and I got a master's degree in counseling. And while I was at North Carolina Central, I worked in the uh, student union and God gave me favor with the lady there and I could eat anything I wanted. You know, I was poor. Mama didn't have the money. And also I got a job uh, off campus at this seafood restaurant. Oh, I wanted to be a waitress. Okay. But guess what? Segregated South. They would not allow black women to be waitress. Mm. So he said, you can work in the kitchen. So guess what? I worked in the kitchen. And I made that money to help pay for college. I even sent a few dollars back home, wow. you know, because there was other children back home. So I did that. And I graduated. I went through summer school to cut my time. And I graduated with my bachelor's and master's, like maybe four and a half years with the summer. And thank God I didn't have any student loans when I graduated. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask is like, you just, you decide you want to go to college. Yes. And how do you just even initially get in there with your family not being able to have any money, was it? Right. Well, actually, I filled out the uh, forms. I did get some grants. Okay. I got a couple grants. Good. And, uh, you know, I might have had a small loan, but I don't even remember getting a loan. You just worked and paid I it off. I worked. I worked. Yeah. I sure did. And see, I was accustomed to working. Yeah. I, I You know, some people are immune to working. No, I worked. Mm-hmm. I, I, and I believed in working and getting what I wanted because mama always told, work hard, do right by people. Mm-hmm. And if you work hard, you know, uh, and, and do right by people, God will bless you. And she, like I said, she instilled some good stuff in us, yeah. you know. And uh, at when I was at that restaurant uh, in the kitchen, oh, it hurt initial, initially, you know, because here we are. It was a very crucial time in our history, the race relation issues. But that's okay because I worked and I made the money and I accomplished what I need to accomplish during that time. And guess what happened when I was in college? Something good. Well, <laughs> initially you're, you're it was. You're smiling, so I assume something good. <laughs> yeah, initially it was good. I met this uh, gentleman in Durham and uh, we fell in love, I guess, if you want to call it that. And I married him. And guess what? It ended up being a nightmare. Hmm. I married a man like my daddy. Okay. Well, this is... I didn't want to hear that. I'll be honest with you. I did not want to hear that. Go yes. into that. Before we go to that spot, yes, I'm, I'm very interested, at least in when you left to go to college and yes. you, you worked hard and you got your degree and your bachelor's and your master's. How did you view the world and yourself any differently than you did when you were younger, when you were in your house and you were in that tiny bubble, that community? What did you see differently about either God, yourself, race, anything? Like, How did things expand for you, if at all? Well, initially... Uh, especially when I was at home, okay? Um, of course, I'm the dark, a darker hue. Mm-hmm. And even within our um, ethnic groups, sometimes uh, we discriminate mm-hmm. against those that are darker. And in my family, we had from extreme light, even uh, some of my cousins, my sister, I had an older sister who was probably your color, okay? Uh, but the kids would tease you. And they would always had adjectives to describe me. Oh, Joyce Griggs is smart, but she's dark. Mm. You know, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that had an impact on my self-esteem. It did. But I forgot to mention this. 
in about the fifth or sixth grade, I had a teacher and she told me one day, she said, I love your smile. Okay. And she said, I'm going to call you smiling Jack. And from then on, I smile, I smile. I love teachers because she put something in me, mm-hmm. you know, and in spite of everything that was, in spite of everything that was going on. And my mom showed me love. Okay. But that teacher, when she said she liked my smile, she loved my smile and she was calling me smiling Jack. And I was smile, smile, smile. And that helped me. Mm-hmm. It helped me a lot. Now let's transition. When I went off to college, I was um, still somewhat, I was somewhat of an introvert. Okay. And I didn't, my self-esteem wasn't that great. It still wasn't because of all of what I had gone through. But on the college campus, uh, I went to, like I said, a historically black college. It was being black was the thing. James Brown came out with a song, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. Okay. And even guys began to say to me, boy, you're a pretty black woman. You know, Hmm. that did something for me. And initially, my husband even said, oh, you're beautiful. And so even though the hurt of my childhood was there, I suppressed a lot of it. I really did. You know, and somewhere along the line, I probably should have gotten help, just like a lot of my my brothers and sisters. But we did not. Okay. But it was God. And I know I had a praying mama that helped us get through. And it was my faith. And also, even in college, when I left home, I didn't go to church that much. Because I questioned God. I said, well, if you're a God, I don't understand. Why did you make people, uh, why did you make black people so poor? Why did you make white people rich? And and that's not the case. All white people are not wealthy. All black people were not poor. But that was my frame of reference. I didn't quite understand. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of misconceptions. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so I was going through a phase of finding out who I am, uh, getting in touch with me, getting in touch with my relationship with God. And it was not easy, okay? And being vulnerable, having not been validated by my father, looking for love in all the wrong places, Mm. I felt that I was in love with the the man that I married. I I felt that he loved me. Uh, He showed me some attention. He acted like he cared. And I believe at some point he did. But he was an alcoholic. Mm. Yeah. Then he started beating me. Mm. I went there and it was like, oh God, not again. Yeah. And I'll be honest with you, I, got to, I went through some depressions. Okay. And I began to question the worth of my life. Why am I here, God? What purpose do you have for me? All this pain, all this hurt, all this sorrow, many tears. I just didn't understand. And I had great in-laws. They were great. My mother-in-law was a teacher at Hillside High School in Durham, North Carolina. My father-in-law was a computer guy out at Duke University. Great people. And I loved them dearly. And they got on my husband about the abuse. Okay? But it the, the straw, like they say, that broke the camel back was one day he pulled a shotgun on me. And he threatened to kill me. Wow. Yeah. But even before that, there was the abuse, the hitting me, the uh, uh, beating me in, in my face. Uh, and it, it was bad. It was really bad. And, of course, I fought back the best I could, but, you know, but I couldn't prevail. But the day he pulled the shotgun on me, my God gave me the strength to walk away and not look back. He even threatened me after then. He said, if you ever come back to Durham, I'm going to kill you. Hmm. I believed him. <clears throat> yeah. Because I saw what he could do to me. The physical abuse that he had had already inflicted upon me 
which caused me emotional turmoil in addition to the physical turmoil. Yeah. Can you explain too, like how hard that is to feel like you're stuck in that situation? Because a lot of people who haven't been through things like that, they're just like, leave. Yeah. Tell somebody, uh, do something instead of taking abuse. But when you talk to people that go through it, it's not that easy. And no, what, what, is, what is it like to be trapped in that, that place? It's very hard. It's very difficult, okay? Uh, in the sense that, boy, I took my marriage vows seriously, mm -hmm. okay? And, but it's like, this is, this is not a honeymoon. This is a nightmare, you know, the abuse. And there I was stuck, okay? And I was in the process of, I was just beginning to, well, I had, I was taking the abuse even while we were married and while I was working on my degrees. And I had just finished my degrees. And there I was stuck. And then I got my first job and the abuse got continuously worse. And it got worse. And I'm saying, God, is it gonna get any better? You know, and then he will always come back and make up, you know, I love you, A, B, and C. Mm -hmm. I said, but you're beaten. If you love me, you wouldn't hurt me. You know, but he did. He continuously, and yeah, I was stuck. Emotionally, I was torn to pieces. You know, mm -hmm. I didn't know where to turn. And I didn't, I really didn't talk to my mom about it because she thought everything was okay. But his family knew about it because his sisters and I was real close. And, you know, I confided in her and they, they, they were concerned. Okay. And uh, not so much they were on my side, but they were concerned about the abuse. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was hard. That was a hard place. That was a dark place for me. There was depression. There was many nights I didn't sleep. I just cried myself to sleep. I cried and I wanted to run away, but it was like, where do I run to? And also I start feeling like a failure. Yeah. You know, I did. I stopped feeling like a failure, but I knew where I was was not good for me. It was destroying me. It was good. And I never thought about suicide at that point, but it was like, there got to be a better way out. Mm -hmm. And at times I did hear a little voice whispering saying, you know, there's a way out. You can just kill yourself and leave. Mm -hmm. And I would catch myself and I would cry uncontrollably. And I said, God, please help me. Because no, that's not the way out. Mm -hmm. But then that day when he pulled the shotgun on me, I said, it's either now or never. And you see, I was also working. And uh, I think he had lost his job. And so he was drinking even more. And he was beating me even more. And he was spending the money. It was bad. I'm thinking I got money to pay bills. He spent the money. Hmm. And then one day he told me, oh, you are kind of smart, aren't you? Because I had hid some money to pay bills. Oh, you took care of that. Yes, I did. Oh, you are kind of smarter. But then he would beat me emotionally, you know? And because I was told, uh, uh, I've even been called an overachiever. Why do you want this? Why do you want that? And I think also he saw the point that I was growing away. And then I had become a professional woman, okay? And I realized that I married him for love but I don't have to take the abuse. I can stand on my own two feet. And there's a lot of women who can't, mm -hmm. okay? As a matter of fact, I took in some women, several women. I ministered to several women who were in domestic abuse relationships and they went back. And some of them were hurt terribly bad, but they have to make their own decisions. But I thank God to this day that I was able to walk away and not look back. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And yes. and there's like there's another transition to your life where you begin your military yes. experience. And does that coincide yes, with, got, with this exactly. time frame? Right. As a matter of fact, I was a counselor briefly in North Carolina at Kitchell College. 
and a recruiter came on campus and I was helping him recruit the uh, some of the students. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, I said, well, what do you have for women? I want to give orders and not take them <laughs> like that, right? He said, well, you got a bachelor's degree. You have a master's degree. He said, that may be something for you. He looked into it. Guess what? I received the direct appointment. I was a civilian one day. I took the oath of office the next. I went to Jacksonville, Florida. Wow. Yeah. And I became an officer. And where I wanted to be was I wanted to be in the social services for the military because, see, they have counselors, et cetera. But instead, they chose me to go into military intelligence. So I became an intelligence officer Hmm. in the military. And um, it was not easy Mm -hmm. because I went in in 1975. And I was a part, still a part of the WAC, Women Army Corps. They disbanded the WAC, I think, 77 or 78. But I went in during that time, okay? So it was not not easy even then. Uh, And I was among the first women to go through airborne school. And So you were jumping out of planes. Yeah, perfectly good airplanes, right? (laughs) Oh, you're so badass. (laughs) I know, right? I needed some thrills. Wow, I bet. (laughs) Yeah. So in any event, I joined the military and... um, I joined the military to see the world. Cause see, I was from a little small uh, country town in North Carolina. Guess where the first place they sent me? Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Yeah, About two hours <laughs> from home because I was airborne. Mm. Okay. Yeah. And uh, it was a good assignment. Uh, then from there, I went to, uh, no, it was before I went to Korea. I asked to go up to the 82nd because I wanted to get in the intelligence slot at the 80 seconds for career progression. And I was told that they said, no way will uh, the CG general have a woman at his uh, brigade level to be an S2 or brigade or battalion S2. They didn't want me. See, things hadn't opened up that much for women even then. Well, what about black women too? How many black women are doing this this uh, path as well? Right. And at the time I was in, it was not that many. We were far uh, in between. I mean, somebody see me as a black officer, and they say, you're an intelligence officer also? They were like, shocked. I mean, really? Mm. Okay? So, because it just didn't happen that often. So, I said, well, Lord, I guess you got a plan for me, you know? So, but in any event, and even at Fort Bragg, it was kind of interesting, right? I was sexually harassed, okay? I was even sexually assaulted at Fort Bragg, okay? And it was unfortunate. I even had a, um, a full colonel who was on the general's list, he threatened me one day. He actually picked me up by my uniform, and he was also having an affair with one of my friends, and he wanted to bring me into their whatever they were doing. And I said, no, sir, I choose my own. But he threatened me. He said, if you say anything, you won't make captain. And it was kind of frightening. It really was, okay, uh, with the way I was threatened, okay? Uh, another area, and I'm being transparent. Yeah. I mean, what can you do about that, though? Exactly. Well, you know, I reported it to another major. Okay, well, uh, uh, and uh, you're right. What could you do? There was a major also that wanted me to have an affair with him to marry me. I said, no, sir, I, I don't, please. And he threatened me with an Article 15, all kinds of crazy stuff. And so I talked with another major who was a friend. I said, please tell him to leave me alone, please. And then that we worked with civilians uh, at Fort Bragg also. And there was a civilian that used to grope me all the time. And I said, please keep your hands off of me. So I went through some things there. Okay, and it, and it wasn't nice. It was a nice scenario. And I'm going to be transparent here. Um, I was stationed at Fort Huachuca, Arizona, and that's the home of the Intelligence Center in school. And I was going through my uh, basic course there. And I met a gentleman who was also an intelligence officer, 
officer. He was an African-American. And we start dating. He ended up getting stationed at Fort Stewart, I think. And I ended up getting stationed um, at Fort Bragg. And so we had a relationship. I got pregnant. I was a single officer pregnant. And uh, back then, uh, they didn't have the maternity uniforms for pregnant women. So I had a sergeant in my unit whose wife was Vietnamese, and she was so precious. She made me these smocks. And uh, my my uh, commander uh, was a Mormon. I was on Smoke Bomb Hill at Fort Bragg. And I went in there and talked with my sister. I know it doesn't look well for a single officer to be pregnant. I said, but I want you to know I'm going to have this baby. I'm not going to have an abortion. And at that time, as I recall, you could still have an abortion on base. But I told him I was not going to. So there I was. I had to stand in formation with a name tag on. And there I was pregnant. And it was like I was just, like the scarlet letter. You know, mm-hmm. it's like I stood out. But I made up my mind that I was going to have my baby. And I told, I told, talked to my mom about it. She said, babe, let me tell you something. If it gets to the point where you can't take care of the baby, you can always bring him home. You know? And I thank God for my mom. Because even then, she was praying for me. And I made mistakes. People make mistakes. But I am so grateful that God uh, is a forgiving God and he redeems us all, you know, Mm -hmm. no matter what we've done. Mm -hmm. And so, no, it didn't look good to the world. Here I am a pregnant female. But guess what? I stood for what I believe was Mm -hmm. the right thing to do for Joyce Marie Griggs. In any event, I had the child. His father rejected me. His father rejected him. Mm -hmm. See, so there I was in this cycle of walking into the, I was just looking for love in all the wrong places, Mm -hmm. you know? And as a matter of fact, his father told me, uh, and I'm being transparent, it was cruel what he said. He told me, kill it, it's just a germ, and you kill germs every day. But see, because of my Christian upbringing, uh, I knew what I had to do for Joyce based on my faith and my relationship with God, even though I had stepped aside. And I told him, I said, you know, I've got to stand before God one day and hold, and I've got to be held accountable for what I've done or failed to do. And you know what he said? No, I'll stand before God for you. I said, no, you stand before God for you mm-hmm. and I'll stand before God for me. I said, I tell you what, I'm going to have this baby uh, with or without you. And I did. And I don't regret it. Mm-hmm. You know? And I know there's some women going through turmoils and struggles and I'm not here to judge anybody. Mm-hmm. You know? Because I know I serve, um, I know my Redeemer lives. I know I serve a true and living God. But in any event, so I made a horrible mistake. Uh, well, not beyond uh, forgiveness or redemption. So there I was in the cycle, you know, mm-hmm. real bad cycle. Abusive father, abusive husband. Get in relationship with Now, the, the, the gentleman didn't abuse me physically, but emotionally he did. Well, you were still getting abused even in the military. Yeah. I was. Which is incredible that you're still going along this path. And you served a long time. Yes, I did. So you had your your, your son, right? Yes. You had your son. And I mean, was it 30 years you were in the military? Yeah, it was like 33. I spent over 20 plus actively and the rest was some reserve time. Wow. And how high up the ranks did you get? What was your... your... I made lieutenant colonel. Wow, that's really impressive. Yeah, I made lieutenant colonel. And I went to Iraq three times, uh, bronze star recipient. I was a deputy director of an intelligence program in Iraq. Wow. And it was it was really, uh, you know, uh, I realized more than anything about my life that I was 
born, I was made to be a servant. Because even in the okay. civilian sector, when I practiced law, I served a lot of people, the disenfranchised, the poor, those that didn't have money. So uh, I realized my, I have a heart for service, mm -hmm. you know, and I have a heart for the underdog, so to speak, because I've been there. You know, I've been thrown to the side. Mm -hmm. I've been uh, been written off, so to speak. But um, in any event, at Fort Bragg, then I went to Korea. I went to Korea from Fort Bragg. My mom kept my son. And I went to Korea. I was with the 2nd Infantry Division over there. And we were near the DMZ, the militarized zone. And you mentioned about um, something about being a woman. Well, in Korea, it was interesting. There were probably like four of us women there. And the guys were horrible. I mean, really, they were horrible, okay? Um, I was the only black female. We were intelligence officers. And I filed several complaints because as a woman, we were referred to as bees, that we were worth worse than tits on a bull hog, that we were the heifer brigade, the skirt squad, and being black, I was referred to as the N-word, mm. okay? And my boss, it was a bad situation again. We worked with Korean officers. And I was uh, about to get promoted to captain. It was a career major. And they said, Major Kim wants to take you out to dinner. And I said, no, I don't want to go out to dinner with Major Kim. So they kept pushing. So I said, okay, I'll go out to dinner with Major Kim. Little did I know it was a setup. I almost walked into a trap. I went out to dinner with Major Kim, and he tried to rape me. Yeah, this cycle of abuse, you know. He put me in a chokehold and literally tried to tear my clothes off of him. And I told him, I said, you look, here we are. You're Korean, I'm American, we're working together. I said, you know, you're gonna get in trouble. You better get me back. He tried to get me drunk initially, okay? And I didn't drink off of rice wine. I said, I don't drink, okay? And so, and he tried to rape me. But that night I fought. I had to fight him to get back to the base. Well, the next day the guys sat around were laughing. How did it go with Major Kim? And they just laughed. They knew what had happened, you know? Really? Yeah, they knew, okay? And even after that, there was so much sexual harassment, racial harassment. And I filed several complaints to the IG and the, uh, the Inspector General at Equal Opportunity. They said I was a troublemaker, okay, because I started complaining. And they said about the women, about the way we were treated. We were officers being treated like that. Mm -hmm. Imagine the enlisted. They were getting treated bad also. Mm -hmm. Well, they said doing the investigation, well, the guys were a bit sensitive because they had never worked around that many women before in, in, in our arena. Nothing was done. Okay, nothing. Absolutely nothing. How do you even want to be around any man based on your life experiences? <laughs> like, how do you even trust any man, want to be around any man? Right. Think positively about other men? I know there's good ones that, out there that you probably encountered and things like that, but th that much trauma over a lifetime. Oh, it was trauma, okay. And... Um, I just kept believing that I was an optimistic person. And I, and you know what? I've been so, uh, I've been idealistic, you know, mm -hmm. in a lot of cases, as opposed to being realistic. I mean, this is the real thing, girl, you know, but I was so idealistic. I kept believing that there's better, there's more. I kept believing I was optimistic, you know? And again, my faith um, uh, kept me going. You know, and at times it was like hanging on by a thread. I bet. I mean, really, it yeah. was. It was hanging on by a thread. 
And uh, and I don't mind sharing because maybe somebody could be helped by me sharing and being transparent. Okay. And I know sometimes people will try to use things against you, but I don't care. I'm beyond that. And let me say this. Um, I left Korea and I went back to Fort Bragg. <laughs> Again, <laughs> little country girl wanted to see the world. Ultimately, I got to Hawaii though. Okay. <laughs> but uh, I went back to Fort Bragg and I was on... Uh, Smoke Bomb Hill again, and uh, I had to go on a assignment to England. And there in England, I met this gentleman. Okay, he was Special Forces. And uh, I guess one of my weaknesses has been I liked uh, um, I liked the intellect. Mm -hmm. I liked to you know on that level, you know. And I met this Special Forces guy. We were in, in England together, and we ultimately ended back up at Fort Bragg, and we started dating. And Joyce making uh. Well, I'm not going to say. Anyway, I got pregnant again. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I had my daughter. And my mom, I talked to my mom and I told her, I said, Mom, uh, he's white. Okay. She was worried about me. She said, are they going to try to hurt you uh, professionally because you're dating a white guy and now you're about to have a child. Bye. But then she did say, you know, if you need to bring the child home, mm -hmm. you can. Okay. Yeah. So abortion wasn't, wasn't even an option. Uh, but he rejected me. We dated for a couple of years, and he rejected me also. And that was another very low point of my life. I went through depression, and that's where I really began to call out to God. Okay? And I was in Arizona when I had her. And um, I had to take a PT test before I could graduate from my advanced course. And so I told him, uh, as a matter of fact, the guys in the class took really good care of me. And uh, black, white, you name it. They were my friends. And I had a way of developing relationships, friendships with, with people, whether they were men or women, you know, and black or white or Hispanic, you know, mm -hmm. whatever color. And uh, so they took care of me uh, in the class. But, you know, one day I was watching television. And I think it was the 700 Club. I was at home. And Pet Robinson came on television and he was talking about the uh about Jesus and how much he cared for you and what he'll do for you. And I said, Lord, can you help me? I've made a mess of my life. You know, I've been to a broken marriage, broken relationships. God, can you really help me? Can you really help me? And at that point, I surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't easy. The path still didn't get easy uh, at that point, but I started trusting him again like I should have, like I should have done all along. But he helped me get through those hard times. And I'll tell anyone, for me, that was the only way, that was the only one that uh, sustained me during those hard times, during those dark periods. I went through some very dark, dark periods of my life. Mm -hmm. But he helped me. He sustained me. Okay? And so in any event, um, I had my daughter. Matter of fact, she's a lawyer now. <laughs> yeah. And my son is a little business owner. And uh, God is yet working on all of us. So I had my child. And at some point, I went to law school in Atlanta with two children. And uh, I worked hard. And see, law had always uh, intrigued me. And let me say this, in my military career, I went through some terrible stuff. And I had gotten passed over at one point for major. So that's when I stayed in the reserve. 
Okay. Even though a lot of things were not right. Um, I said, you know, still one day I know that just gotta be some justice. So, um, I went to law school in Atlanta. I used my GI bill. Thank God for that. Mm -hmm. With two children as a single parent. And we got through law school, studied for the bar. At that time, I had been living in Savannah because I was stationed out at Hunter Army Airfield. And, uh, and then we moved to Atlanta and I went to law school. And ultimately, I came back to Savannah and I set up my law practice in my house, in my home. And um, so um, I practiced law up until, uh, what was it, 2004. I ran for Congress in 2000. Okay. Okay. And I lost. And in 2001, there was um, orchestrated, and I say it was, orchestrated attack uh, scenario against me by federal judges. Um, they actually put in some of their documents that I was a black female that ran as a Democrat for U.S. Congress against Republican Jack Kingston. And as a result, they, uh, they had me to come in court because they basically said they didn't like the way I had... Uh, a practice law before them. And they said things like I had been late. But let me say this, uh, as an attorney, uh, you may have court cases going on in several courtrooms. You always say, well, hold my case uh, to the end. I'm in another courtroom, things of that nature. But I hadn't done anything uh, hard, but I had tried a, a police officer case uh, earlier on. And I was informed that the federal courts had gotten mad with me because I had fought so aggressively for that, for that police officer. But in any event, uh, the Savannah Morning News, the newspaper, actually put the proceedings from the federal court, uh, took the proceedings and sent it to the state bar of Georgia, who started an investigation against me. Wow. Yeah. And uh, in 2004, they took my license, my law license to practice law. And that hurt. It did. Wow. And at the time, my daughter was in law school in Jacksonville, and she just boo-hoo cried. I said, baby, let me say this. I'm still your mom, and God is in control. But, you know, God sent me a word of encouragement even before they took Just that day, I had, was in court in Statesboro. And I remember clearly it was in February because it was one of the dead presidents. Day. It was a federal holiday, but the state courts were open. And I had a friend that called me from Hinesville. He said, I need you to come to Hinesville to your office. I said, okay. He said, bring your Bible. I said, okay. And he said, I need to talk to you. I said, okay. So we sat there and we talked. And uh, he said, he gave me um, about tribulation, tribulation working patience on and on and mm -hmm. on. And I said, okay, thanks. And I said, you know, brother, I said, you may not know where I am with this bar thing at this point, but my attitude is, Lord, uh, I'm in your hands, and whatever you want from me at this point in my life, I yield to you. Believe it or not, as soon as I finished saying that, the phone rang. It was Savannah Morning News on the phone. You know what they asked me? What are you going to do now? I said, well, what do you mean? You've been disbarred. I said, I didn't know it. I didn't know anything about it. Yes, you've been disbarred. What are you going to do? I said, well, like I said, I didn't know. So I called my lawyer who was in Little Wissy. I said, did you hear anything? He said, no. He said, well, call the uh, Supreme Court of Georgia because they're the one that issued the orders. So I called. They said, yeah, you've been disbarred. I said, ma'am, this is egregious. Why would you notify the newspaper before you notify the person involved? Okay. But in any event, they took my license. It wasn't easy. 
Even before then, they had started mocking me. They put me on television. They put me in the newspaper, uh, degrading me. I mean, just crazy stuff. And I said, Lord, uh, I didn't ask for this. I don't understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. But I had prayed Philippians 3.10, that I may know him in his fullness uh, and the fellowship of his suffering, conformable unto death. And see, at that point, I was really seeking God in a new, in a deeper way. And I said, God, please. I cried. I did. I was hurt. My friends were hurt. My family was hurt. My mom was hurt. I had worked hard for that degree. And to snatch it away like that. I hadn't stolen any client's money. Most of the time, a lawyer gets this bar for stealing client's money or doing something like that. You know, I mean, committing a crime. But I had not. It was because of who I am or who I was. And so I cried out to God. And he reached down and touched me at the point of my pain. Oh, yeah, I was hurting. I was painting. And even when I had to go back over to my law office and clean out my office, there was such a, a pain. And sometimes I was going to my conference room. There was carpet. I would get on the floor. And I was just crying. I would just weep. And one day one of my friends saw my car there. She came by. And um, she embraced me and cried with me, you know. And uh, it was not um, an easy thing because, I mean, it was just crazy. Someone even called the bar on me after I had stopped practicing, said I was practicing out of my office. I wasn't even here at the time. I had gone to North Carolina, spent some time with my mom. And the investigator came down and said, no, this is a lie. She's not even here. You know, the, the office is closed down. And it was so much hatred. I said, God, I don't understand. But then I realized they hated Jesus without a cause. Okay. And... But through it all, I had people praying for me, standing with me, and um, I just stood. Mm-hmm. You know, it was not easy, but I stood because I knew that there was something in me that I must share with others. And in order, I believe, for me to understand and be compassionate about what my brother or what my sister is going through, irregardless of their race, color, or a sexual orientation, I've had to go through something so I could have that compassion. And so... Here I am today, in 2020, I ran for Congress again. Yeah, this is incredible story. And I mean, that's you're bringing us to where we're at towards the end of the podcast, which is where you are at right now. Yes. And through everything that you've shared, <laughs> that you've went through. And it's it's not just these amazing experiences that have grown you and your relationship with God, which has been had its ups and downs, but it's really powerful. You're sharing it's it's the depression, it's the trauma, it's yes. the abuse from men and people that are above you and <clears throat> hate and yes. because of gender, because of race or because what you believe. So, and you know, not not taking it from the political side of why you would run for office, but just from a personal, yes. emotional and <laughs> mental side of it, why go through something yeah. that could really hurt you again or sure. go through all that energy to run for, for Congress when <clears throat> you've, had all those other experiences. Sure. Why do you? Why would you want to go through? Why that? would I run again? And you know, uh, that is a good question. And I'd run again, not for me, 
but for the people, because so many people have been through the hurt. They have been thrown aside. They've been cast aside. Uh, the disenfranchised, uh, the least of these. And I feel like I represent all of them because I've been there. I've done that. But by the grace of God, he has strengthened me to continue to stand. And I say the people need a strong voice, someone that will listen to them, someone that will articulate their needs. And I believe I am that person. I've been there. I've been a single parent. I've been without a job. I've been without health care. I've been poor. We've been so poor. There was abject poverty. I've been there. I believe I represent all. All of them, mm -hmm. all of these. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm running. Not for me, not for any fame, not for any glory, because I am a servant. I was born to serve. Serving is what I do. Mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you deal with, you've had so much rejection and trauma and abuse and hurt. How do you deal with that even now, just right now in the sure. present where you know people are going to say things that are hurtful about you, that aren't true about you. People are going to have judgments of just who you are as a person based on you're female, you're black, yes. you have the letter D next to your name on the ballot. Right. So already certain sure. certain number of people are just gonna be like, this is what I think about that person. Like, right. how do you, and again, not politically, but just as a person, as like a how person. do you deal with that? Like some people aren't even gonna give me a chance or wanna right. hear what I've been through, which is again, why I love the podcast to give sure. people an opportunity to do that. But how does someone, handle that yes how does someone handle that and you know um that is a good question also because again i go back to my faith like even when i was uh the professional situation happened it was all men mm -hmm. okay a confederate era judges okay and let me say this that made remarks that and it's out there that women basically had no place, that blacks should go back to Africa. They even made derogatory remarks about Jews. I mean, just crazy stuff. And these were Confederate era judges. And even in the courtroom, uh, I was uh, um, not given the same respect that I should have as my male counterparts, especially the white male counterparts. But what got me through was prayer, trust in God, believe that there is going to be a better day. And like I say, in spite of all that, I am still optimistic. I am more realistic now, mm -hmm. but I'm still, and I pray and I practice preemptive forgiveness because I had to pray really hard when the situation happened with my license. Oh, I cried and I prayed. I cried and I prayed. And I asked God, please, you've got to help me because in the natural, it would have killed me. It would have destroyed me. Mm -hmm. But I needed God to intervene and he intervened in my life and helped me. And he raised me up above my enemies, above my adversaries. Mm -hmm. And I trusted and I believed in his word. I took his word for faith value because he said uh, and I said that no weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue that come against you in judgment, you shall condemn because that's your heritage. And I kept standing on God's word. God's word. I kept eating the word, eating the word. It fed me. It helped me. It cleansed me. I said, God, I need to have a pure heart and clean hands. That's the only way I can stand before you, you know, because I had a soul at stake. They had a soul. And I asked God to forgive them for what they had done because they did not know what they were doing. Mm. Yep. Well, and we we know what's going to happen to you if you win. Yes. You go to Congress and you have a whole different lifestyle and you, you pursue that path. Yes. 
But do you feel like you have purpose if you if you don't win? Like God has something in store for you that this has been a platform to still do something in this next stage of your life? Yes, I do. As a matter of fact, uh, people say, well, you retire from military gesture, but I, I will never retire. You see, because each one of us have something in us that can help somebody else, you know? And that's what it's all about. I think if we ever realize that you were not born just for you, you were born to impact somebody else's life, to empower other people. And I will continue. I've been a community activist. I'm a community activist. I've been an organizer. I've been in the communities. I will continue to do that. I will continue to work with the least of these, the disenfranchised, even those uh, uh, in uh, upper levels, okay? Because in the military, I work with uh, uh, subordinates. I have my peers and I have the superiors. So I've worked with all of them and I will continue to do that. No matter what their race, sex, or gender is, uh, they are human beings. They're part of this whole creation. We're all part of this, this thing that God has created, this creation. And if we can look at that and be willing to help somebody else and realize it's not just about you. And I get satisfaction out of that. Mm -hmm. I really do. Yeah, that's really cool. And I know we don't have time for it, but even before we started talking on the podcast, we were talking about our experiences going to Africa and yes. Haiti. You went to Uganda. Yes. I've been to Rwanda. Just helping out people in other countries sure. to get different perspectives yes. and, and how that's helped too. So it's like, you know, I know you're not just blowing smoke. Like you, right. you've spent a lot of time helping other people, not even just here in America or sure. Savannah, but in, in other countries, countries too. And that's, it's really amazing. You can feel your passion for it. And, you know, we always like to end our podcast with just asking our guests of how can someone make a difference? And for you, there's so many different avenues <laughs> yes. with, with what you've went through, with being in an abusive relationship, yes. having, having a, you know, a bad father figure, abusive father, um, being divorced or having a, an abusive husband or a relationship Chips. of that kind or yes. experiencing discrimination either in the work or military or just sure. outside of it. And, you know, they don't, somebody doesn't have to be your best friend to make a difference or even know you that well. But what can the average person do when they see someone who's going through something like you have in your life? What are, What's a small thing or a couple of things they can do to just make a change and make sure. a difference in, in your life or someone like your life? You know what? Um, I've been in places and I don't know. I, and my daughter always say, mama, you never meet a stranger that you didn't know. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so what I do is sometimes you listen to them, boy, people are hurting out here. Mm -hmm. Even if you just speak a kind word, somebody might need to hear what you're saying, that you're worth it, that you can make it. So I would say, speak a word of encouragement into somebody's life. Encourage them to go on, that they can make it. Don't give up, don't throw in the towel. And I tell people, I don't care what you've been through. If you look at all your life experiences, it'll bring you to a certain point and you go, boy, that wasn't, I mean, it might've been bad at the time, but it made me who I am. And share, serve somebody else, do something for someone else. And you'll be surprised at what that would do for that person and also what that would do for you. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, I appreciate that. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule because we're just a couple of weeks away from voting yes. and that you would make the time to do this. And I, I hope that people will take the time to listen to whether they want to vote for you, not vote for you or undecided about voting and just hear the person's story yes. and say, yes. you know, you know what, no matter what, I can take the time to listen to someone's story and sure. she's going to be representing us here, whether she's in Congress or not. That's right. And I can be supportive of her and listen to her and work together with her to help impact other people's lives. Sure. And let me just say this. And unfortunately, we're so divided in this country. 
And it should not be about Democrat or Republican or independent. It should be about the people. Mm -hmm. what's, what's in the best interest of the people? And that's what I'm about. It's about the people, the best interest of the people, mm -hmm. irregardless of party. I can work across party lines. I can work with anybody mm -hmm. to make sure we do the right thing for the people. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you caring about the people. Thank I appreciate you. you being really vulnerable about what you've went through. Yes. I mean, that's all of those things have their own story and deep paths and yes. deep hurts. And just the fact that you would share all of that and give people a glimpse into it yes. to help other sure, people that right. you may never even meet or know about that say, you know what, I've been through something like that too. And that's right. And I, they can make it. They can they, make it through. And they can make it. And that's what I'm exactly. really getting from you is that like, exactly. I'm sitting here just like wilting, like, yes. I don't think, sure. I don't know what I would have wanted been able to do going through some of the stuff you have, but I really appreciate it that you. you're and still I can helping still others. smile. Yeah. And I can still smile. And now genuinely, yeah. you know, not just a facade. Yeah. And that teacher helped me. So I thank her too. See, that's incredible. That yes. you know, picking cotton fields, not being able to go to school and then the way you made it, but all the way going back to how your mom instilled things in you. How yes. a, how a teacher just said that you had a nice smile and how that carried you through so many it's just it's yeah. unbelievable. So for you to say like say something kind or encourage yes. somebody or notice what's positive about them. Yes. And how that transcended your life is it it's did. really incredible. Yes. So I, I thank you for being here. Thank you. And um, yeah, this has been the Neglected Podcast and we'll see you next week. Thank okay. you, Joyce Griggs. Thank you so very much and I really appreciate being here. You're welcome. Bless Thanks everybody. You.